0: Tonight's Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 to 28. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preached, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection also comes through him. <clears throat> Whereas in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, Then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This is God's word.
1: For those who haven't met me, my name's Phil. I'm one of the ministers here at Christ Church Mayfair. It's lovely to have you here on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. We're going to pray and look at this wonderful passage together. Father God, we, we don 't understand what it means that uh, there could be such a thing as life that goes on forever it 's beyond our experience, and so we pray that you would give us uh, minds to understand the truths of your word and hearts that would be stirred and convinced and Father, we pray that our lives would be shaped by a deeper hope, a hope that sets us free from uh, the fears that prevent us from serving you and giving ourselves to others. We pray that as you show us the truth of the resurrection tonight, that we would be set free to live lives that matter. Amen. Now a few years ago, uh, every bloke was given for Christmas the worst case Scenario Survival Handbook. Who here was yeah every, most of the blokes remember that. About a year later you could pick it up in every single charity bookshop for about a quid cuz you know as soon as you move house it's one of the first books that went but it was a the great thing about this book was um it took you through the realistic things you needed to know as a man uh, to to live in this world. It was great. You know, if there's an alligator that needs wrestling, who here is a man doesn't want to be able to do it. You know, don't worry. I've read one page of this book. Let me let me tickle its belly. And we've, uh, we're in a bank. There are people with masks and guns. It's all right. I read a half-page insert in the book. I will negotiate with them. Everything shall be resolved. The plane is going down. The pilot's had a heart attack. One of the wings has fallen off. Fear not. I've read a page of my book. It's just fantastic. It just basically gives you everything that as a bloke you want. Easy knowledge that looks impressive. Great. But there was, um, there was one scenario that was missing from the book. In fact, it's the most common scenario that will be faced by all of us. The most common devastating, deadly, awful scenario of death. There was nothing it could say about that because you can't write a book on how to get through death because no one can do it. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, look, it doesn't really matter what else you're able to do in life, how brilliant you are at uh, managing your money, how successful you are in your relationships, how awesome everything about your life is. If you don't have an answer to death, it is worth nothing. And he says, whatever your worldview, whatever you come here believing tonight, whatever way you think about uh, life and God and the ultimate questions, if it doesn't have an answer to death, it is not worth the paper it's written on. Conversely, Paul says, if Christ really rose from the dead, if this is true, then you can never be without hope in this world. If it is true that Jesus has come back to life, then you never need to be afraid and you never need to be hopeless. Uh, Let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 15 together and see how he gets there. So we've been working all the way through 1 Corinthians 15. We're at the end of the substantive part of the letter. And last week we saw that he said uh, the central truth of Christianity is uh, there's really two pillars. Christ died for sins according to Scripture, and now Christ rose to new life according to Scripture. Uh, Three points, you've got them uh, on the service sheet there, uh, and we'll start in at 15 and verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, the empty tomb of Jesus is one of the great facts of history. There was no body in the tomb. For 2,000 years, skeptics and open-minded inquirers have searched, and no one has ever found the bones of Jesus Christ. But millions and millions have found something much more exciting. They found Jesus Christ alive, risen from the dead, with power to save us from our sins and with power to bring us safely through death as he has been through death himself. And Paul starts um, with the evidence for this because that is a huge claim. Now, he's writing here, not to convince 21st century Londoners with our questions, but 1st century Corinthians. So he probably goes for slightly different things from what we would expect. But I think it's just worth looking at what he goes for. Um, I guess some people here would have uh, other questions. And I'd love to chat to you afterwards if you've got uh, questions about the evidence for the resurrection. There are there are great books that have been written. And in one sense, I want to say, uh, try and disprove it. Because most of the best books on the resurrection of Jesus have been written by people who set out to disprove it and found it was true. So if you have come here as a skeptic and you want, to, you want evidence, I'll say, look, go and try and disprove it. And then come back when you've written the book <laughs> saying that Jesus really rose from the dead. Uh, but come chat to me afterwards. I'd love to, to point you in the direction of, uh, of various bits, various helpful books. But Paul here gives three lines of evidence for the Corinthian questions. Uh, firstly, it was promised in Scripture. So do you see in verses 1 to 4, um, we'll dive in at verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. See, the resurrection was not made up by Jesus' followers to fit the idea that they wanted to keep the whole Jesus thing going. We're on a good thing, we want to keep it going. In fact for cultural reasons having a bodily resurrection made it harder to sell Christianity to wider culture it's a bad sales pitch in greco-roman culture because in greek thinking the one good thing about death was that you got rid of your body and your soul was set free because the body was the prison of the soul in plato's thinking and so nobody wanted another body they wanted uh, they wanted their souls to to dwell and and their souls to go forward. And if you taught about the resurrection of the soul, brilliant. But the body, no one wanted to know. But the disciples couldn't ignore it for the very simple reason that it was part of the Bible all the way through. They couldn't tear it out because it had always been there. The Old Testament talked about uh, humanity all rising. There are lots of places you could turn. In Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, But your dead will live, O Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew, O Lord, is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Likewise, the Old Testament looked at the the Messiah, the promised Savior King, and saw that he would rise from the dead. So in Psalm 16, a great psalm about uh, the Messiah's trust in God, it says at the end, You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One, your Messiah, see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You'll fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Throughout the Old Testament, there'd been this promise of resurrection. It's not something new they'd made up. Now, secondly, it was witnessed by many. That's the point in verses 5 to 8. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as one abnormally born. Now, his focus here seems to be the appearance of Jesus after the resurrection, in particular to to the apostles or to groupings of the apostles. That's why he stresses uh, the apostles, the disciples, Cephas, because it is their testimony that Jesus says is the authorized one that uh, will be written down and passed on down through the generations. But the point is, there are a ton of witnesses, just stacks of them. This isn't, you know, the... The say of one man who had one vision. And do you notice uh, you've got uh, people who are far too familiar with Jesus to be fooled by an imposter. This James is Jesus' own brother. The disciples, the apostles like Cephas, they've followed him for three years. They're not going to be fooled by somebody pretending to be Jesus. And then there's the 500. Uh, Do you notice that he stresses in verse 6 that they're still alive? Well, it's AD 55-ish at this point. Of course they're still alive. It only happened 20 years ago. Why would you bother saying something as blatantly obvious as they're still alive? Because his point is, look, if you don't believe me, go and ask them. There's stacks of them. There's hundreds of them. Pick anyone you like. They'll all say the same thing. Any of them. Anybody who met Jesus afterwards. They'll all say exactly the same thing I've been saying. Go and talk to them. Verse 11 stresses that all the eyewitnesses agree on this. They all proclaim the same message. Jesus appeared over a period of 40 days at daytime and at night time to small groups and large groups. This is not a mass hallucination. It doesn't work like that. This is the truth seen by eyewitnesses and recorded for us. And Paul's point, therefore, is you do not need blind faith. This is what he's saying here. You don't need blind faith to believe Jesus rose from the dead. You just need legs to walk to go and find some of the witnesses, a mouth to ask them, what did you see? And ears to listen to their answer. It's even easier for us because the witnesses wrote it down. So all we've got to do is read what's been authoritatively written and reliably transcribed in the Bible. He was witnessed by many and therefore we can trust that he rose again. And lastly, thirdly, it's proven in the life of Paul. Verse nine, for I am the least of the apostles, Paul writes, He goes from being this hate-filled bigot, willing to kill and throw children into prison to stop the spread of Jesus' message, to a love-filled disciple who's willing to give his own life to tell anybody and everybody about Jesus Christ. You've got to account for his change. You've got to account for the, for the disciples. who Some of them lived decades knowing pretty much nothing but persecution. Day in, day out, because they keep proclaiming Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, the inhabitants of Brussels are only too painfully aware right now that people will die for what they think is true. But people do not die for what they know to be a lie. All of the disciples, all of the witnesses suffered, and yet all of them said it's worth suffering for because it is true. They knew Jesus, they'd met him. Okay, so much for the evidence. Uh, as I say, this is uh, this is really the evidence that's aimed at the Corinthians. Uh, some of it is helpful for us, but I guess you probably have other questions. We all have our own individual questions, so do come and chat to me afterwards um, about your questions. But I want to focus really tonight on why does it matter? I mean, why make Jesus' resurrection central to Christian belief? He says, the, uh, I want to tell you what is of first importance verse 3. First importance. Why would you make something as hard to swallow as the resurrection a matter of first importance? As enlightenment thinking took over um, Europe, really, in the 1800s following Immanuel Kant and others, there was a a replacement of accepting revealed authority, such as religion, with uh, the ultimate authority of rationalism. That I as an individual with my mind, I am the ultimate authority and I don't need anybody else to tell me anything. And ever since that point really, the resurrection of Jesus has been a colossal sticking point. Because it's just very hard to swallow. I mean, how can a a rational, scientific person swallow the belief that a man died and then came back to life and has never died since? It would be so much easier to to believe in Christianity if you didn't have stuff like that really. Surely Christianity would be a better package for a scientific age like ours if we were able to redact out the the miraculous things and stick to Jesus' teaching and his example. Which, let's face it, the world could use more of Jesus' teaching and example. And since the, the Enlightenment, lots of theologians have sought to, quote, rescue Christianity from the unpalatable nonsense of primitive apostles to make it more suitable for modern men and women like your good selves. There are two problems with that. Firstly, Jesus is adamant in his teaching that he's going to die for sins and that he's going to rise again. So you can't say we want to just stick with the teaching of Jesus if you're then going to ignore what he teaches. Because he teaches, I'm going to rise again after three days. But secondly, as Paul makes it clear in the next verses, if you get rid of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not left with, uh, well, sort of Christianity light. You're left with nothing. Absolutely nothing have any value whatsoever. Let's have a look and see how he says that. He says, uh, secondly, Christ's resurrection is essential. And here's the big point. If there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection, sin rules and death wins. If there's no resurrection, sin rules and death wins. That's where we are. So verse 12, as some at Corinth were denying that there was a physical resurrection to come, but if it is preached Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Now that's a fairly colossal error to make this early in the church's history. So how on earth is it going on? Well, I think as so often with Corinth, the answer is in in their culture. We've seen time and again that the church in Corinth is shaped by their culture rather than the cross of Christ. And many of them, as we've seen, are wealthy. They already had luxury. They already had comfort. They already had wonderful lives. And now, through Jesus, they have forgiveness. Now, through Jesus, they have the comfort and the joy of a relationship with God through his Holy Spirit living in them. Now, through Jesus, they have this wonderful Christian community to love and support them. And it seems as though they they felt like they really had it all. Uh, So Paul has already said to them in chapter 4, verse 8, already you have all you want, already you've become rich, and you have begun to reign, and that without us. See, I think what's going on is that the the Corinthians have read the promises in the Old Testament that um, in in the Messiah's age, when God restores the world, it'll be an age of, beauty and joy and comfort and triumph for God's people and they look around and say that looks pretty much like what we've got now and so they start thinking well all this talk about a resurrection age that's just sort of figurative actually the the promises of the bible are focused on the here and now I mean because look around look how wonderful life is It's not a mistake made by many Christians living in North Korean prison camps or in towns controlled by Islamic State, it's got to be said. But the Corinthians at this point have no persecution and they have very full purses and very wonderful lives. But Paul says to them, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. That is pretty strong stuff. It's useless if Christ has not been raised. Why does he say that? Well, first, verse 15. You can't trust what the apostles teach about anything if you can't trust them on this. Verse 15. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. You know... You find out someone's lied about something that big and you can't really trust them on anything else. It's it's interesting. Uh, Pictures of Tony Blair's face now. You you put a picture of him and you get people just to sort of flash response words and dishonesty is one of the top words that people come up with. Because we as a public, I don't want to get into the politics, but whatever, we feel like here was a man who lied about something massive, deceived the country into a war, I'm not saying he did or didn't. I'm saying that's what the perception is. And the truth is, he is just people feel like you can't trust him now. No one would trust Tony. And if you can't trust what the apostles said about, if they lied about, oh, mm, yeah, I know, Jesus, the resurrection thing, sorry. Just made it up. Bit of a joke. You think, oh, Hang on a second. If I can't trust you about that, I can't trust you about anything to do with God. That's it. Everything that they write and say is off the table. The stuff they say about Jesus' teaching, can't trust that. The stuff they say about Jesus' death, can't trust that. If they lied about this, you can't trust them about anything. But it's not just their trustworthiness that goes out of the window. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus did not rise. And if Jesus didn't rise, his death failed to pay for our sins. You see, when someone has finished their sentence in prison, they're released. If they're not yet released from prison, it means their sentence hasn't been complete. There's still crime to be paid for. If Jesus is still dead, he hasn't finished paying for our sins. Which means our sins are still against us. We're not forgiven if Jesus hasn't been raised. And if he's not finished paying for sin, then he's not conquered death. So you and I still face the problem of sin and death if Jesus hasn't been raised. If he didn't come back to life on Easter Sunday, physical bodily life, well then... You and I face an eternity living in a universe of staggering beauty and joy. A universe where God is creating galaxies. A universe of laughter and love and joy and life. And it'll be a universe we will only ever know from the outside. Because the doors will be closed in our faces because we will be shut out from all that is of God. We will hear the laughter and joy and delight of God, but only from behind the walls, if Jesus didn't rise again. That's why Paul says in verse 19, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. Now I think we are probably in danger of losing sight of this truth in the West. You see it in the language of church websites and in the soundbites of Christian leaders and the tweets that they send. It's not that they deny that, the, that Jesus rose from the dead. It's not that they deny that there's a resurrection hope of a, of a new world to come. It's just a shift of emphasis to, to this life, to the hope of transformation and healing and fulfillment now rather than then. Uh, so one well-known church... Um, would call itself a Bible teaching church, and they would say their vision is to reach and influence the world by building a large, Christ centered, Bible based church, changing mindsets and empowering people to lead an impact in every sphere of life. Do you see what's missing from that? Do you see where the focus of everything is? You know, we see the research that says Christians have longer life expectancy. We do. Better marriages, according to the data. Quicker recovery from short-term psychological problems. More happiness, deeper friendships. We see those things and, and we start to emphasize all that Christianity offers in this life. As if Christianity's main aim and central point is your best life now. As if that is what it really is all about. Now, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work transforming now. I'm not denying that. Jesus' resurrection was into this world, and the power of that resurrection breaks through already. But the call to follow Jesus is a call to take up our cross. We follow blood-stained footsteps in a life of self-denial. It is cross now and crown later if we follow Jesus. It is easy to miss that truth in Corinth or in London. But in the rest of the world, it's not easily missed. Uh, just this week in the Middle East, four Wycliffe Bible translators. So they're just academics working in different parts of the world. These guys were in the Middle East, translating the Bible into the language of the, the people that they were living amongst. And uh, Islamic... Um, Local Islamic extremists took offense to this and ran, came into their office and beat them severely and then started to shoot the bodies. Uh, two of them uh, lay on top of the lead translator to try and protect the uh, the work that was being done, uh, but they were just gunned to pieces and all four were killed. This week, just this week. Uh, this week a little further, um, over in Bangladesh, a young man converted to Christianity and his neighbors were so incensed by this they hacked him to death in a mob. Just this week. Now if Christianity does not have resurrection to offer to those four translators and to that young man, it has nothing. Nothing. And the truth is that if Christianity doesn't have resurrection to offer you and me, it has nothing. Because we are still in our sin and we still face the prospect of eternal death cut off from God forever. You see, no matter what Christianity gives us in this life, if Jesus didn't rise, I'm a sinner facing the wrath of God. If Jesus didn't rise, I still face the prospect of dying forever. Uh, Imagine um, you're buying a super yacht. Uh, Your bonus has come through. It's been a good one this year. Uh, Your name is Roman Abramovich. Let's let's up the ante a little bit. Make this realistic. So you've uh, you've you've ordered your yacht, the Eclipse. We don't know how much it costs. It's somewhere between four hundred and fifty million dollars and one point two billion dollars. That's quite a wide range. I'm thinking. I'd like to have been in the meeting when uh, they finally gave the bill to him. But anyway, uh, it's got uh, two helicopter ports. It has a submarine, surface-to-air missile system. Imagine uh, Mr. Abramovich. I imagine they call him Mr. Abramovich. Is uh, is finally getting the keys. Do you have keys to a yacht? I've never had a super yacht. I don't know. He's, he's finally having the keys to his super yacht, and they're, they're giving him a tour around it. Mr. Abramovich, this is the surface to air missile system, so that uh, just in case there happened to be a head of state somewhere in Eastern Europe who didn't like you. Anyway, uh, you know what it does. Uh here's the two helicopter ports just, you know, cuz one isn't really enough. Uh, and here is your submarine and here is the most amazing stereo system ever. I mean, this thing this thing will, you know, separate your spine from your the rest of your body. It's so powerful. And this uh the chef three Michelin stars at two different restaurants. Uh just um uh, so here's the key. I uh, just uh, one detail really, you know. Uh just one tiny thing. Uh, it doesn't float. <coughs> But, you know, three Michelin star chef, I'm telling you, it doesn't float. That's not worth anything. That's not a sort of where we'll negotiate down, we'll give you a million dollars off. That is, it is worthless. It's a yacht that doesn't float. If Christianity does not give us resurrection life and forgiveness for sins, it is worthless. It is a yacht that doesn't float. And you and I are dead in our sins. If there is no resurrection, sin rules, death wins, and a godless eternity is the fate that all of us face. But Jesus did rise. And having stated the negative, he now states the positive. Christ's resurrection is essential. Verses 20 to 28. It's the same point, but he now tells us the positive. So 20 to 22. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Christ has risen. He is alive. And best of all, it affects you and me today. He is the first fruits. What does that mean? Well, most of us think fruit comes from Tesco. We're not wrong, but there is a little bit more to it than that. But let's just, uh, let's just imagine another scenario, if you will. Uh, imagine that you've been, uh, you've been relocated with work up north. Um, it's a wonderful place. I won't hear anything said against it. You've been sent up north to that specific region of the country. And um, you are a fabulously wealthy head fund manager in London, so you own a 230-square-foot studio flat in Zone 16. Um, but... Yeah. Head up north, head up north, and you can trade it in for a seven-bedroom mansion with ensuite bathrooms everywhere and mature gardens. I've never understood what that phrase, anyway. Mature gardens and an orchard. But being a Londoner, you have no idea what the orchard grows. It's just trees. But as you spend the summer there, enjoying your uh, getting used to this place, you bought a barber jacket and you even own a shotgun now and a flat cap and all these things, and you're enjoying... and. As you wander around the orchard every day of summer, you see the buds develop as things grow. And slowly, slowly, things are starting to grow on the, on the trees. And as the first tree produces the first little apple, you know you're going to have a harvest of apples. It's not rocket science. And that is what is happening with Jesus. Jesus. He is the first fruits of resurrection life. In other words, we look at him and we see what we will one day be. Physical, real, eternal, undying beings. That is our hope, for he is our model. He is the first fruits. Uh, Verse 22 summarizes an enormous amount of Bible in one uh, compressed little statement. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Naturally, we are Adam's children. We're born addicted to sin. He is the representative head of humanity. And we follow after him. And however you understand the theology of it, we all behave like Adam, rejecting God. And we share in his death and we share in his mortality and we share in his sin. But Jesus is the new Adam. He is the start of humanity 2.0. Trust in Jesus and things are different. In Adam, we share in death. In Adam, we share in a rejection by God. In Jesus, we share in life and forgiveness and relationship with God. Now, we love uh, things to be about us, but all the emphasis actually in the following verses is about Jesus, and so it should be, because He is the first fruits. When you learn about Jesus, you're learning things that are promised to you and to me. So the most exciting parts of the Bible are not the bits that talk about us, they're the bits that tell us about Jesus. And it says, verse 23, but each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself. He put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all and may be in all. Jesus is our hope. Our hope is that he will reign, that he will destroy death, and that he will bring order to the universe. That at the end, at the start, everything went wrong because a man who was given glorious status by God wanted more. At the end, the universe will be brought back into perfect order because God himself, God the Son, will humbly give everything back to his Father. The opposite of Adam. Adam brought total disorder through his grasping. Christ will bring back joy and order and peace through his humble submission to his Father. And you and I will share in the benefits of that forever. One of the, uh, sadly, one of the best-selling Christian books of the the last few years was titled Your Best Life Now. And there may be some good things about that book, but the truth is that the central premise of it is just wrong. Following Christ is the best way to live your life now. It is, but it is the life of the cross. It is a life shaped by self-denial, by pouring ourselves out in service for others. It is a life that only makes sense in the light of the wonderful future reward from God. It is a cross now and a crown then. And we make a terrible mistake if we think this is the final chapter. That this life, this existence is when everything has to work out. If I think that, then I will seek security and I will avoid pain at all costs. I'll grow angry with God if things don't work out. I'll, I'll be bitterly resentful and devastated if life proves difficult or disappointing or tragic. But if you trust in Christ, as good as it is to follow God, and it is so good to follow God now, as good as it is, the best is yet to come. Nothing in this world can match what is to come. This world is to the next world what having a holiday brochure is to enjoying the holiday. It is just nothing compared with the experience that we will have. Now the point is not that we uh, hang on grimly. The exclusive brethren had in their meeting halls uh, no no windows in the walls, only windows in the ceiling because they were uh, just stay away from the contaminating world, just look for the return of Jesus. We don't need to be like that. You see, it's when we have a firm understanding, an unshakable grasp of the truth that Christ is the first fruits. And if I trust in him, my sins are gone and my death is dealt with. That I'm set free to go out into the world, a risky, dangerous world, and give myself to serve others. Safe in the knowledge that my future is secure. That the worst thing that could happen to me has been taken care of. The resurrection sets us free from our ultimate fears, death and rejection by God, and sets us free to give everything we have to love and serve other people because the reward of God will make up for everything. We have this guarantee of an eternity of unimaginable delight with God. See, because Jesus died, our sins are forgiven. Because he rose again, we know that for sure. And because he rose again, you are free if you're here tonight. And you trust in Jesus. And you are secure. And whatever happens to you tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. You know your sins are gone. And your death is dealt with. And your God is going to bring you home. We share in Christ's destiny. We share in his resurrection life. Our privilege now is to live out that life. Our privilege now is to call others to share it too. And our promise is that one day we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Easter. We thank you for resurrection, and we thank you that this is, uh, this is not nonsense, that there is good evidence, that we're not fools for believing it, but it is. It makes more sense than any other explanation. Jesus rose from the dead. Thank you too that it matters that because Jesus rose from the dead, we have our death gone and our sins paid and an eternity of joy to look forward to. We pray that you would help us to live in the security of that lives of sacrificial service and of deep and abiding joy. Amen.